Russian troops entering into the Ukrainian lands is a tired old story. We thought that chapter closed in our history back in 1991. Here they come again. When Putin talks about this ancient whatever, he's just making stuff up. That's Nicholas Rudnitsky. He's a dean of academic services at Manor College in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. And he's also an expert in Ukrainian history. Thanks for spending a few moments with us here at CatholicPhilly.com. We are the digital media channel of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. I'm Gina Christian. While Russian President Vladimir Putin has justified his invasion of Ukraine in part by repeatedly claiming the two nations share, as he puts it, a historical unity, but scholars and analysts worldwide have discredited that narrative as directly contradicting historical fact. In this podcast, Rudnitsky delves into Ukraine's past, and he shares with us why getting that right has a profound impact on the present and the future, not just for Ukraine as a nation, but for the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church and for freedom itself. Let's take a listen. This is not new. Um, uh, The Russian troops entering into the Ukrainian lands is a tired old story. We thought that chapter closed in our history back in 1991. Uh, But it seems that history isn't done with us quite yet. Um, because here they come again, and its uh, primary target, uh, just as before, is going to be the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. From its very inception, in 1596, uh, it's it stuck uh, in the craw of the, the Muscovite uh, Metropolitanate and later Patriarchate, uh, because here was a pathway uh, of unity. Uh, here was the Eastern Rite, the, the traditions that, you know, were laid down uh, going back to Voldemort the Great in 988. It's very much uh, Slavic, very much uh, Eastern-oriented uh, under you know, from Constantinople, but through the prism of the Slavic uh, culture. And yet it recognizes the authority of the Holy Father in Rome. Uh, it, it has its permits very inception. It could use the Gregorian calendar. It could use the Julian calendar. We are, our churches celebrate both Christmases, celebrate both Easter's. Uh, it's wonderful uh, that you know it's so uh, uh, all welcoming, and that has always irritated the Russian Orthodox Church, and it seems to have always been a, uh, a, a contentious point between all ecumenical attempts between Moscow and Rome. Um, now, this is very much, uh, at this juncture, I think, uh, has to be seen. 2019, um, the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew uh, issued that Thomas uh, that liberated the Ukrainian Orthodox in Ukraine to be under the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, as opposed to the Russian Orthodox Church, which was a remnant of the Soviet days. Uh, and I, I, I'm fairly certain uh, that that had a very big role in Putin's decision. Because there goes the illusion of Russian influence. Uh, when the Russian Orthodox Church uh, lost the ability to claim the faithful of the Ukrainian lands, uh, it kind of exposed them as being a very, very fairly minor church. Rudnitsky says Westerners don't fully grasp the dense relationship that's existed between the Russian government, whether Tsarist or communist, and the Russian Orthodox Church. That alliance has had, and continues to have, a devastating impact on Ukraine and on the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the, the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, that from the beginning of the Romanovs, uh, was almost an organ of the state. 
And that was one of the things, uh, that relationship between the Russian uh, state and the Russian church is what made the Ukrainians very uncomfortable. It is one of the, the I, I suspect, uh, the leading motivations in the creation of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Uh, because here was a, a, I mean, they were under the authority of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was very much Catholic. Uh, the Poles are famously Catholic to this day. The Lithuanians are famously, famously ambivalent. Uh, they, you know, Calvinism had its moment there. Everything had its moment there. God bless them. They were the last true pagans of Europe. But the Poles were ultra-Catholics, and the Ukrainians were Orthodox, at least in terms of ecumenical uh, divisions that took place ever since the schism. Uh, when Moscow started expanding, and it also shared uh, the, the Eastern Rite and the Orthodox faith, the Ukrainians uh, quickly saw that as a threat. Uh, and so they, uh, much to the chagrin of the Poles, uh, opened up direct relations with Rome, and thus the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church came into existence. Uh, for the longest time, it was called the Uniate Church. It, it irritated the Poles because it bypassed them, and it infuriated the Muscovites because they saw it as being treacherous to orthodoxy. Uh, but Constantinople had already fallen to the Ottomans, and so it acquiesced. It had no issue with it. Uh, and so the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church came into existence uh, as the Ruthenian uh, or the Uniate Church. But every time, and, and history proven to be right, because every time the Russian Orthodox Church came near it, it liquidated. Uh, the famous one is 1946. Uh, the Black Synod of Lviv that was held in St. George's Cathedral, uh, where uh, uh, under the authority of uh, uh, Soviet uh, guns, the Russian Orthodox Church dissolved the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. And, and it's funny because when I talk to uh, you know colleagues and historians, they point to, well, that, that was a Soviet action. And, and I make sure they understand, yeah, but the 1839, the same thing happened when Russia partitioned Poland and got the the, the, the lands of Volhynia and, and uh, uh, Polotsk. The Synod of Polotsk, the Russian Orthodox Church, liquidated the Greek Catholic Church of Ukraine in those areas. It is a consistent theme. If Moscow is allowed to expand uh, throughout Ukraine. You will see this happening again. You will see the Ukrainian Catholic churches very much being either uh, most likely just handed over to the Orthodox, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church. The keys will simply be taken. Uh, if history is any precedent, uh, the priests will either d uh, disappear or be outright uh, killed on the trumped-up charges, and uh, the Russian Orthodox Church will grow in numbers again on paper. But in truth and faithful, I don't know. If more people realize that, if they knew about it, they would understand how this uh, action that's going on today it does have a domino effect, does impact more than just the local populations involved. Um, that it is the first domino to fall. And when we allow one domino to fall, we cannot be surprised when others follow. Rudnitsky also says Westerners have relied too heavily on strictly Russian sources for Ukraine's history. That's why it's essential to recount Ukraine's history from its true beginnings. Keep in mind, the Ukrainian lands, there was no Moscow or what later would be called Russian forces on the Ukrainian lands. That all happens in the 17th century. When Putin talks about this ancient whatever, he's just making stuff up. 
Russian historiography has had a vested interest in, in presenting this monolithic point of view that Western scholarships was a bit lazy about in the 20th century and just copied it. Uh, historically, there are three centers in Ukraine. The first is, is the capital itself, Kiev. And that is, uh, I mean, that's the ancient capital, the golden throne that goes back to Kievskorush, the ancient empire that had its 14 principalities uh, and accepted Christianity in 988 uh, on the Dominio with Voldemir the Great. That is a history that, that Russia uh, purports to, you know, it claims, but it, it's really a at best a, a tangent kind of connection to them because those principalities were very much changed by the Mongol invasion. In 1240, when Caves Kodos fell, the lands that currently, like where Moscow is, uh, the Vladimir Suzdal uh, uh, principality, uh, underwent a huge change in which its Slavic character was very much um, uh, shifted uh, to more uh, local eastern tribes. Uh, so by the time that the, the, the Mongols recess, Moscow, uh, uh, which didn't exist in Kiev's Kodos days, comes into existence. I mean, basically, uh, the, the ruler up there uh, uh, became the tax co uh, collector for the Khan and skimmed off the top and was able to build a Kremlin and start building his forces. Uh, so Moscow's connection to Kiev's Kodos is tentative at best. I had a professor years ago that said it, uh, that uh, Russia is the unbaptized bastard child of Kiev's Kurus, uh, because it is really just a, a post-Mongol um, uh, creation. Whereas in Ukraine proper, I mean, Novgorod was one of the ancient cities. It fell to Moscow in the 15th century. Kiev is uh, the, the heart of it. Now, in eastern Ukraine, in the 20th century, the first capital of Ukraine uh, was actually Kharkiv, the eastern capital. But historically, Lviv, the western capital from which my family comes, has always been kind of the hotbed of, of national consciousness. And that's because it, it, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth that controlled all these lands for uh, hundreds of years before its partition uh, was a proto-democracy. So officially, you could be Orthodox, you could be Ukrainian, Ruthenian, you could be anything else. You didn't have to be Polish, you didn't have to speak Latin or write Latin, and you didn't have to be part of the Roman Catholic Church. It was a huge benefit uh, in, in terms of securing your uh, stability in their society, but it wasn't mandated. Uh, so we had these uh, powerful Ukrainian lords that were absolutely orthodox, church Slavonic, and all that fun stuff under the Commonwealth. Uh, and Lviv became kind of a, uh, a bastion of it after their partitions, and that fell to the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Russia came in from the north and the east uh, during the partition. So these lands really, for the first time, become part of Russia proper uh, under Catherine the Great. Actually, Catherine II. I shouldn't have said the Great. My father would be not happy. <laughs> uh, at the close of the 18th century. Uh, so uh, the partitions are the first time where you have... So anytime Putin talks about this nonsense of ancient ties, yeah, it's 200 years. I mean, 300 years if you, you know, want to stretch it, uh, but not much more so than that. Um, and the Soviet Union changed everything anyway. Uh, Stalin very much continued a tradition set forth by Peter and other Tsars in the sense that he transplanted whole villages, entire polities were, uh, uh, you know, trying to uh, integrate and uh, uh, assimilate everybody into one culture. 
Now, keep in mind, uh, the attack on Ukrainian culture isn't something that's symbolic, esoteric, or theoretical. There are uh, decrees. Uh, the Voluyev Circular in 1863 and the Emzukas in 1875, these were edicts by the, the, the political uh, power in charge, the Tsar, that banned the Ukrainian language. It was illegal. They made the Ukrainian language illegal. They liquidated the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church. Uh, they made the religion illegal. Uh, they arrested and uh, uh, exiled the spiritual leaders. Uh, Yosef Slipi being the last one of note, he was uh, the metropolitan of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church that after the Synod in 46, uh, they exiled him to uh, Siberia. It was only by virtue of uh, Pope John the Twenty-Third and John F. Kennedy. Uh, that under the Khrushchev regime, they were able to free him and have him, uh, and he came over to the West and revitalized the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, in all honesty, in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, and they created a new title for him, and the Pope didn't want to make him a patriarch uh, for, you know, uh, again, it being a sticking point with any kind of ecumenical discussions with Moscow, unless they invented a whole new title for him, Major Archbishop. He was the first of those. Since then, I think they've, they've also done that with the Syrians. Uh, but he was the first that they invented it for. Ukraine knows the lessons of history, said Rudnitsky. And the West needs to learn those lessons as well, if democracy and religious freedom are to survive. In the diaspora, uh, the initial disbelief was quickly overcome uh, because uh, the community has, uh, this is what they feared. Um, But in some quarters, this is also, once the first signs uh, came through, in 2014, this is what they started to expect. Uh, uh, Once Crimea was taken, and the consequences of that were, you know, economic sanctions that didn't seem to make a difference. Um, it, it, the anticipation was that, okay, well, it, it's reminiscent of World War II before it started, that if we don't hold the line, they won't stop pushing. And so 2014, Crimea, uh, shortly thereafter, Luhansk, Donetsk, uh, uh, the, the mercenary troops came in uh, and it started um, an influx of, these weren't Ukrainians that were living on those lands. Um, these were, I mean, some of them were captured as Chechnyans. Um, it was clearly a foreign instigation, a Russian instigation. And so those were, the shoe was dropping. They saw it coming. And it shouldn't happen. It shouldn't happen anymore in the 21st century. It's happening in Europe. So what what are the Chinese going to, to take from this uh, when it comes to their aspirations for Taiwan? Uh, you know, what signals does, does this send around the world uh, when such things can happen in the bastion of democracy? It may seem like this has nothing to do with me or us, but it really does. The uh, United States signed an accord uh, in Budapest in the 1990s that allowed uh, for recognition of Ukraine's sovereignty. It guaranteed Ukraine's sovereignty along with the United Kingdom and Russia uh, in exchange for giving up its nuclear arsenal. Uh, it was uh, a momentous occasion. And uh, yet Crimea falls to Russia in 2014, and that Budapest Accord is not enforced. Um, what good is our word? Uh, what good is uh, you know, United States guarantees if it won't stand behind its uh, its promises? Um, and I, I really hope that we as uh, Americans uh, understand that in a democracy, our government is our responsibility. 
uh, we the people. And therefore, uh, the, that which we promise, we should keep. And if we allow him to do it over there to them, there'll be no one left to help us when they're over here doing it to us. The Poles and the Czechs and the Baltics in particular, they know this. They are the ones that in NATO and in the EU are, are, are sounding the alarms first and foremost because they see that they're on, they're on the doorstep. Um, Ukraine serves as a vital buffer. I mean, the name of the thing, Ukraina, is the borderland. That's, the, that's where, up until that, is where Christianity spread. Uh, and geographically speaking, if one just looks at the continent of Europe, goes from the Atlantic to the Ural Mountains, which are the physical uh, borders of the European continent, the center of Europe geographically is Lviv, the western capital of Ukraine. So if you think of it in those terms, this isn't some, you know, backwater kind of skirmish between distant powers that has no influence. Allowing this to proceed uh, uh, unchecked uh, would be a disaster for all. And that was Nicholas Rudnitsky, Dean of Academic Services at Manor College in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, and an expert in Ukrainian history. Thanks so much to Nick for speaking with us. And for more on the war in Ukraine and the Catholic Church's response, visit us online at catholicphilly.com. Thanks to our publisher, Archbishop Nelson Perez, to our editor, Matt Gambino, to you, our listeners, and to our Lord, in whom we place our hope. I'm Gina Christian, and until next time, may God bless and keep you.